Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen. Uh, here again, uh, a verse from our gospel reading. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. As we look at the text of the Bible, we see instances of this happening pretty regularly, but one of the ones that stands out is in the book of Revelation. As we're given an image of the throne room of heaven, in Revelation chapter 6, the seals of the book of life are being opened, and we're given an image of the saints of God who have been martyred for their witness of Christ, crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? This really is the, the cry of the saints. Like children waiting for the birthday party, the Christian continually cries out, Oh Lord, how much longer? How much more of this stuff will I have to deal with? As I face the sin, the anger, temptation, physical pain, suffering, sorrow, mourning, and death, that this world continually throws at me. As those wages of sin continually rear its ugly head and the curse of sin is an ever-present thorn in my flesh, Lord, nothing is easy. Nothing is seamless. Worldly comforts don't amount to much. How long? How much longer are we going to have to deal with this? Ultimately, the question becomes, how much longer must I put up with this unbelieving world? And how much longer must I put up with my own sinful mess of a flesh? Psalm 13 teaches us to ask the same question. How long, O Lord, the psalmist prays. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face on me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider me. Answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here's the image that we are given of the faithful man of God as he cries out, how long? This faithful man of God lives in constant distress. He has nothing but sorrow in his heart all day, every day. His enemies are exalted while he remains in humility. He is suffering while the world prospers. He strives to be faithful as the world abandons all faith in God. And it seems the more he clings to the goodness of God, the more his earthly life is filled with complications, struggling, and suffering. He has sorrow. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And that's all he has. He has trust in God, yet he complains that God hides his face. And this is the common complaint 
I, as a pastor, hear from people in their times of distress as they will come to me and ask, where is God in all of this? Where is he in my sorrow? Where is he in my loneliness? Where is he in my pain? I can't see any good coming out from this. I cannot see any hope in my sorrows. Yet the faithful man of God in Psalm 13 says, My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Yet while he cannot see God's face, it seems as if God has forgotten him. But what must he do? Keep on clinging. Clinging to God's promises. Trust that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he's going to do. And though the man may suffer for a time, he trusts in God knowing that God is faithful and that his face is never hidden from him. And yet the question still echoes, how long, O Lord? This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples today. As he says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and a little while and you will see me. He's comforting his disciples because this is the night before his death on the cross. Certainly in a little while, the disciples would no longer see Jesus. As Christ is arrested, they will flee to save themselves. As he dies and is laid in the tomb, they will not see him. You cannot see the fear, or you can see the fear and the sorrow that they will experience in those moments as they are locked up away from the world. As they go up into the upper room, they flee into their own lives, and they're hidden because of the fear of the Jews. What an immense sorrow they must have had and experienced on that holy Saturday as they sat in Sabbath, not knowing what was going to happen. They had followed Jesus for years. They had witnessed him do every sort of sign and wonder. They were convinced that he was the Christ. All their hopes were bound up in him. Their future and their faith in the Lord were all wrapped up in Jesus, and now he's dead. And they can't see him. We must imagine that Holy Saturday was probably one of the longest days of the disciples' lives as they received no details about that day in the scripture as we, we hear nothing about what the disciples are doing, saying, or thinking. You have to imagine the gloomy reality that the disciples are dwelling in because all hope was lost. Perhaps they sat in silence, stunned by all that had happened. Maybe they argued and blamed one another for all that had transpired. Most certainly there was weeping and lamenting and sorrow. Perhaps they even joined in and prayed Psalm 13. And the root of their sorrow was ultimately their separation. The separation God, from God caused by their sin. Their sorrow came from not being able to see Jesus. And this is the same sorrow that we share. Because we do not see God. We cannot see God in our sinful condition. Sin denies us all fellowship with him. We cannot enter into the gates of heaven and say, here I am under my own power. The gap of fellowship for the disciples of Jesus had been bridged in the person of Christ. 
Christ is God in the flesh, come down from heaven to redeem sinners. And this is what they believed. They confessed this about Jesus. As they said, Lord, to whom, to sh to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was their joy. This was their hope. But for a moment, all of that joy and hope has vanished. And they're given nothing but sorrow. He was gone from them. He was dead, laid to rest in a tomb. And this is the true sorrow that Jesus is speaking about to his disciples. It's a sorrow that comes from being removed from Christ so that all we can see is our own sinfulness. This is the sorrow that we experience in this world as this world is filled with pain, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual anguish, the heart, the body, and the soul languish in this world. And why? Well, the world is godless. The things of God are alien to man. As St. Paul writes in Corinthians, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the hearts of mankind are darkened by sin so that we're driven to seek pleasure in those things that are often offensive to God. And what does that do? That pleasure that we seek, contrary to the will and the work of God, well, it makes us miserable. It kills us. It warps our spirit. It pollutes our heart. It hardens us and hands us over to wrath. When this is pointed out to us, well, what do we do? We revolt and push back and rebel even further. We grow angry at God. We shake our fist at him. Our dissatisfaction with God drives us to replace him with the gods of our own imagination. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, For although the people knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And since they did not seat, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God hands this world over to its sinful passions to show man how miserable sin actually is. As you look at the fruit of the debased mind of man, what do you see? Misery? Sadness? Broken hearts, fear. Paul lists what's going on. Evil, covetousness, strife, deceit, hatred, slander, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. 
There's nothing but discord with God. And that is really the definition of misery. The sad thing is that so many people are content with this sort of misery. They look at their lives that are filled with every sort of godlessness and they think, well, I have it okay. I'm fine. And when they don't, when things are hard, they shake their fist at God and they curse him for their struggles. And even though the curse comes as a product of their own behavior, the judgment of God is intolerable to them because, well, they hate him. They may even hate those who trust in him as well, and that hatred earns them more sorrow. And for Christians, our sorrow might be a little different. Because our sorrow doesn't flow from hatred of God, but it comes from a realization of how weak we are. Because we want to be the strong ones who stand in judgment of the debased, fallen, miserable world. We want to be the ones who stand confident and bold and are happy all the time. We want to be the ones who express nothing but joy. But that's not what the disciples are able to do that holy Saturday as their Lord is buried and in the tomb. The disciples realized something when Jesus died. They realized they were weaklings. They thought they were strong. As Peter boasted, I will follow you even to death. Thomas said, let us go to Jerusalem that we might die with him. They believed themselves to be bold men of God, ready to go out and fight and conquer. But when true testing came, they abandoned Jesus. They denied them. They hid themselves. And as Jesus was bearing the sins of the world, they didn't flee to find comfort at the foot of the cross. They did not rush to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he is dying for their sake. They ran in the opposite direction. And they found comfort and sheltering themselves from the world. And this gave them sorrow. It was the realization that they were nothing but miserable sinners in and of themselves. The difference between the disciples and the rest of the world is that they were actually ashamed of their sin. Peter wept when the rooster crowed because he recognized how terrible his denial of Christ was. And the world was rejoicing as Christ was on the cross. The disciples wept because they recognized how far they had fallen and how distant now Christ would be from them. And this is why Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament as the world will go on to rejoice. And you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. Theirs was a faithful sorrowing. They were sorrowful for their own sin. They were sorrowful because they could not see Jesus who they loved. They were sorrowful because of what their sin produced in their hearts and in their behavior and that moment of testing. Their sorrow and their tears were sorrows of contrition of true spiritual sorrow that comes from knowing that your thoughts, words, and deeds are offensive to God. And that is the sorrow that a Christian feels. It's the sorrow of living in the world that rejoices in the absence of Christ. It is the sorrow that we experience in knowing that we have failed to do what we desire to do, and we desire to serve God, that we love him who loves us, but we fail. We desire to control our hearts and our minds and our behavior, but often we stumble and overcome. 
Much like Paul says in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I hate, I do not want, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's the painful part for us, according to our flesh. It is knowing that we fail to overcome ourselves. And this is not the way that the world thinks. The world will tell you to trust in yourself, believe in yourself. The world will claim that there's no problem that you cannot solve. There's no struggle that you cannot overcome. So long as you believe in yourself and work hard, there's no problem that cannot be overcome by your ingenuity, by your strength, by your intelligence, by your goodness. But you, you want to know something that everyone who believes in this has in common? They will die. And they can't fix that one. And that's because they cannot fix sin. There's only one answer for sin. It's faith. It's repentance. It's to be sorrowful to God for the sins we have committed against him and to trust that he takes the sins of the world away. It's to do the exact opposite of what the disciples did on Good Friday. They fled from the cross. We must flee to the cross. Their sorrow was because they could not see Jesus. But if they had been at the foot of the cross, they would have heard his voice. They would have seen his face. They would have heard his words of comfort as he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, it is finished. They would have received the consolation and comfort for their sins, knowing that Christ indeed had died for them. Their sorrow, though it stung, would have given way to joy. And that's what happens on the first Easter. As Mary sits outside the tomb weeping, what happens when she sees Jesus? Well, her inconsolable sorrow gives way to inexpressible joy. The same goes for the disciples. We have the two men that were on the, the road to Emmaus, and they were leaving Jerusalem dejected and filled with nothing but sorrow. Yet as Jesus meets them on the road and opens the scriptures to them and breaks the bread, they realize that they had seen the risen Lord Christ, and they run to Jerusalem to tell everyone what happened. And then we have the ten who were there in the evening of that first Easter with the locked doors. They were hidden away. They feared the Jews. They were scared, they were frightened, and they were ashamed. And what happens? Jesus appears to them and declares the peace of God that had been won. What happens when their hearts are no longer dejected? But they're filled with gladness. And why? Because they've seen the Lord. It's not just seeing him. It is also in hearing the words of the absolution that he brings. He says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give. But if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus forgives sinners. 
Seeing Jesus meant that their sins were forgiven. As the scriptures teach, he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so their weeping ends when they see Christ come to them in mercy to redeem them from their sin. And that is the consolation that brings us joy. This is the gift that the disciples had when they saw Jesus. They knew that God was no longer angry and wrathful with them over their sins. That wrath had been appeased. It had been paid in full. They had been forgiven. That's why in Psalm 30 it says, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Seeing Jesus alive assured them of all of this, that death had no hold on their Lord, and that means sin had no hold on them. We can say the same. Though we do not see Jesus in the same way the disciples did, we share in that same consolation. Your sins are forgiven you. We know that God has not forsaken and handed us over to our sin. As we are sorrowful over our sins, we know the one who takes our sin away. That means that even though we may experience every form of sorrow in this life, God has not nor will he ever forsake you. He is not hidden from you. No, he makes himself known to you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says it this way. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What Peter is describing here is saving faith that believes that Christ is risen from the dead. And this is how we see Jesus on this side of heaven. We believe the testimony of the apostles which says Christ lives. Christ has risen from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We can't see him with our naked eyes, not the way the apostles did. Yet Christ reveals himself to us all the same. He makes himself known to you. And in doing so, he takes away our sorrow. He gives us the scriptures. He sends preachers to proclaim his resurrection. He enlivens us through holy baptism. He comforts us with the words of the absolution. He feeds us with his risen body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Jesus makes himself known to us through these works of the Holy Spirit. And that is the context of his promise that your sorrow will turn to joy. He is in the middle of promising his disciples that he will send his Holy Spirit so that they will not be left alone and ignorant of his love. And what will the Holy Spirit do? Well, he will show us Jesus. He will open the eyes of faith so that we know the one who saves us. And in knowing him, our sorrow gives way to joy. All sorrows become temporary pathways to more joy as we live in the gospel of Christ. As Jesus likens our pain to the sorrow of a mother in labor, the anguish and pain of childbirth are incredible. I am continually in awe of how my wife gave birth to four children. It is amazing. Yet these most painful days give way to inexpressible joy. Mothers are caused to forget the pain as they rejoice in the gift of a newborn child. The pain is overshadowed by this gracious gift of life that God provides. 
And that is the same for us and every sorrow that we may experience in this life. The sufferings of our bodies in this fallen world, the anguish that we experience in our hearts as a result of sin, the conflict, confusion, and pain that we have in our minds, the spiritual agony that we experience as we wrestle against our fallen flesh, the mourning at the loss of loved ones to death, these all tarry through the night. We will not be free of these things on earth. We will mourn. We will weep. We will experience every sort of sadness in this world. We will lament the fallen state of the world and the godless attitudes that people have. Yet, Christ makes himself known to us. He has not left us as orphans in this fallen world, but he promises, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, all the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And so today, we live by faith. We join the man of God and Psalm 13 praying, I will trust in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in your salvation. Because we see Jesus by faith. We know the one who has conquered sin. We know the one who has overcome death. And we know that we will see him face to face. There is no sorrow that will be able to touch us in that day. Because he will have wiped every tear from our eyes. We wait for that day and we rest in the steadfast love of God. We declare along with long-suffering Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, I will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold him and not another, how my heart faints within me. Your sorrow is just a little while. When we cry out, how long, O Lord, Jesus gives the answer. In a little while you will see me, and your sorrow will give way to joy. Let us pray. Father in heaven, bless us with faith so that we do not languish over our sins or the sins of this world, and that our sorrows don't overcome us with grief. But give us joy in knowing that Jesus lives, and that on the last day we will see him. And bless us with faith so that we now see him where he's promised to be. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise. Amen.